Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. And if you didn't catch that earlier, that announcement at the end of the uh, Highway 61 show was accidentally left on there from a pre-recorded show, so please disregard that. You are listening to Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. It's 10 o'clock, and it's time for Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle. Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today's show is about land conservation in the Hancock County region. Many of us who live in the WERU listening area benefit from a tremendous array of places to enjoy the outdoors. Whether hiking, bird watching, paddling, or simply enjoying some quiet solitude in nature, a local land trust may be to thank for our access to these treasured areas. Today, I'm excited to talk with three conservation leaders and learn about how their organizations and their volunteers strive to protect important coastal and interior lands for the benefit of our residents and coastal communities. So my guests today are Aaron Doherty, who's the Executive Director of Frenchman Bay Conservancy. Hi, Aaron. Good morning, Natalie. Great to have you. Um, We're also joined by Hans Hans Carlson, uh, Executive Director of the Blue Hill Heritage Trust. Morning. Thanks for having us here. Great. And Bob DeForest, who's a project manager from Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Hi, Bob. Good morning, Natalie. So welcome to all three of you. Um, I'm excited to have this conversation today because I know that all three of your organizations have been involved in all kinds of projects over the decades and especially over the last years um, to work with landowners and volunteers and residents to protect some pretty special places in uh, this region here. So we're excited to learn from you guys about the work that you're doing and um, what some exciting current projects are that you've got going. Um, So before we jump in, though, it's always nice for people to get a sense of who's in the studio and what the things are that um, you're especially excited about. So I just wanted to get your story of how you got into the land conservation world and um, what's exciting about this work to you. And maybe let's start with Aaron, who's with Frenchman Bay Conservancy. Sure. Thank you. Um, well, my path to land conservation has been a, a very roundabout one. Um, you know, I, I came here uh, to Maine about 10 years ago via Connecticut to Oregon, um, a good straight line. And, um, and along the way, it included, um, you know, an education in biology and 
um, public administration. Um, but the theme really has been how to help people and the role of nonprofit organizations. Um, so, you know, for a little while I worked on, um, oh, uh, promoting public health and uh, banning smoking in restaurants and bars. Um, and then later in my career, I worked a little bit in fisheries, um, doing um, community fisheries-based work. And about four years ago, I had the great opportunity of um, applying for this position here with Frenchman Bay Conservancy and giving back to the communities in a different way and protecting places that people really cherish um, supporting um, opportunities to protect public drinking water supplies and access to water, uh, wildlife habitat, and allowing people access to nature and uh, great opportunities to get out in the woods and uh, connect with the world around us. So, um, yeah, it's really been that theme of, of how to give back to the community and uh, finding an exciting way to work with nonprofit organizations uh, really to support public benefit. That's great. Thanks, Aaron. That was Aaron Doherty, who is the director of Frenchman Bay Conservancy. Um, how about you, Hans? Hans Carlson of the Blue Hill Heritage Trust. How did you get into this work? What's your story? Well, this this might turn out to be a theme this morning because I have my own <laughs> circuitous path to this uh, into this job. Um, so I spent my 20s uh, building wooden boats and um, basically being a woodworker in a, a number of different ways um, and then got it in my head to go back to graduate school and um, sort of forgot to stop going to classes at some point and ended up with a PhD. Um, and then I did uh, a stint uh, teaching in, in, in college. I was at the University of Minnesota f um, for a while. And then at some point it became um, important to come home to New England. I mean, I am a New Englander. Um, and for family reasons and personal reasons, it, it, was, it was time to come back here. Um, and that's when sort of a, a, a number of the, the pieces of my life came together um, to, and, and I find my, found myself being the, the director of a conservation forest down in uh, northwestern Connecticut, um, a place that had been under conservation for about 100 years as, as a working wow. forest. Um, and um, then the, and I, I, had, I had done my, my PhD work at, uh, at Orono, so the, the opportunity to come back to Maine uh, came up about 18 months ago or so, and here I am. At Blue Hill Heritage at Blue Trust. Hill Heritage Trust. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That's great. Um, how about you, Bob? You've uh, Bob is with Maine Coast Heritage Trust, where you've been for a chunk of time now. What's your story? Yes, I'll, I'll keep with the theme, a somewhat circuitous route to where I am today. Um, I grew up in western Pennsylvania, and my introduction to Maine was coming up to go to College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor about 30 years ago. And there, I f my focus was primarily on uh, ecology, uh, ornithology, and environmental policy. And I started to work uh, through the college um, in seabird colonies. So I was working um, off the coast of Maine in turn colonies and puffin colonies, and then also working uh, did some work out in the Dakotas and in Hawaii, uh, working with seabirds and shorebirds. And then I came back and uh, started working um, to sort of complement uh, the research I was working as a sea kayak guide here on the coast of Maine and leading uh, trips up and down the coast and did some guiding down in Baja. 
and uh, moved around a little bit, but decided to to come back and uh, continue my work here in Maine through doing some environmental education. And that's when the opportunity to uh, work for Maine Coast Heritage Trust came up. And I saw it as a way of uh, working sort of hands-on with partner organizations and uh, private landowners to sort of protect these places that I had enjoyed, both from um, taking people out sea kayaking and paddling the coast, and also working on these uh, important seabird colonies on the coast of Maine. Great. So there's some themes in all of your trajectories related to giving back. And um, and I'm sensing also, though none of you said it, but the opportunity to help protect places that you love to spend time in. You've all spent a lot of time in the outdoors, it sounds like. Um, so you all work for organizations that I'm going to sort of lump together and call them land trusts. And you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, can you Can one of you sort of explain what a land trust is. We have three different approaches, similar but different, um, sitting here in the room. And uh, let, let's before we dive into the projects, how does a land trust work? Yeah, um, I can take a stab at that, and then anyone else can can jump in here. Um, so, a land trust is an organization that's uh, set up to protect places that um, are valuable to people and and wildlife. Um, that's really what it comes down to. It, so it's. It's voluntary conservation, and it's um, supported by voluntary uh, donations in large part as well, and it's set up for public benefit. Uh, so we're all um, nonprofit organizations, 501c3 uh, nonprofit organizations that are specifically established to benefit the public. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's set up to address that problem of how to protect places that are uh, vulnerable to some sort of threat, you know, changing landscape. Um, loss of wildlife habitat or loss of access to water. We're all familiar with how the coast of Maine um, has a decreasing number of places where you can actually get to the coast, uh, where the public can get to the to the coast. And uh, the only thing that, uh, that I would add to that in addition is that in some other parts of the state or the country, um, land conservation is done by different entities. You know, it's it's done by the state or the federal government, and you've got parks and you know public places and public money going into that into that sort of conservation. Um, the model that we're relying on right here is all it's community driven. You know, it's it's uh, individuals, uh, individual landowners, and again, that voluntary element and community based element I think is really important. Yeah, actually, uh, Maine is uh, rather unique. Uh, We have 75 land trusts um, statewide. We've been up to about 105. We've seen sort of uh, uh, merging of land trusts over uh, recent years and consolidating of land trusts. But we have 75 land trusts throughout the state um, or more. And uh, as Aaron mentioned, uh, Maine relies on land trusts for a lot of the conservation uh, we have about 6.5% of the land in Maine is public, which puts us at the lowest percentage for the East Coast. And it ranks us about 38th in the country as far as public lands. So a lot of the the places that people enjoy really are um, these places that are protected by land trusts. So public lands would be something like Acadia National Park or state parks, um, but you guys are working with private landowners to protect local areas. 
Yes, that's correct. Great. And Bob, can you explain also the role of Maine Coast Heritage Trust? My understanding is that you guys are statewide mm-hmm. and you help sort of be kind of the glue between a lot mm-hmm. of those land trusts throughout the, the state. Is that true? Yes, it's true. Uh, so we're in, coming up on our 50th year. Uh, we started in 1970. And we played a role over the years of starting uh, a number of land trusts, these 75 land trusts. And we continue to play a role through the main land trust network, which is housed in our office down in Topsom, Maine, uh, providing uh, support and resources for the land trusts throughout. We hold an annual conference to help with um, bringing people together to discuss current Uh, conservation issues, uh, work out with trainings and education. But then we also play a role um, as far as working and partnering with the the local land trusts throughout the state. Great. And your work specifically is in this region? Yes. Uh, So there are, I'm on the land protection staff, and there are seven people in my role from the Isla Shoals, uh, just off of New Hampshire, up to Treat Island, just on the border of Canada. So we do cover the entire coast, and we sort of divide that up geographically. And I cover eastern Hancock County, so I overlap quite a bit with Aaron, and we work often on... uh, land conservation projects. Great. And we'll, we'll learn a lot more about those in a little bit. And then Hans, um, how does Blue Hill Heritage Trust work? Is it similar? It, it's very similar. And one thing I would add um, to what the others said about what conservation organizations do, um, two, two of our organizations have the word heritage um, in, their, in, in our names. And that's, and that's on purpose, um, because I think one of the other things that our organizations do, even if it doesn't, if we don't have the name Heritage in our in our in our name, is to conserve the the human connection, or the connection between human beings and human human society, human culture, human communities, and the land that we all live on and the land that supports us. And 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 we do work in a very similar fashion to. to other organizations. And your region is the Blue Hill Peninsula? Essentially, yeah. Essentially Route 1 down to Egamogan Reach. Okay. Yeah. Great. The the, the seven towns that that comprise that that part of the peninsula. Okay. Super. And then Frenchman Bay Conservancy, what's your over, I mean, clearly around Frenchman Bay, as the name implies? Yeah. So we started about 30 years ago in the Frenchman Bay proper uh, region. And then uh, more recently, about 10 or 12 years ago, we expanded into the Union River watershed as well. And around the same time, um, expanded a little bit to the east. So now uh, we cover from uh, the Ellsworth area north. So that's the Union River watershed and then the various watersheds of the Frenchman Bay region and further east to the Washington County line. Um, and so those are, are really our three focus areas. Um, we still work very much in each of those areas. We've conserved about 3,000 acres around Frenchman Bay proper, including um, an, an island in the bay, actually a couple parts of a couple different islands and coastal areas, um, and then some of the upland areas around Frenchman Bay, and more recently working with Bob and Maine Coast Heritage Trust on the 
um, nationally significant wildlife uh, corridor between uh, the Skudik Peninsula and Maine's Northwoods, and really um, helping to keep that as an intact uh, wild area interspersed with communities along the way. Um, and then in the Union River area, um, Ellsworth is kind of the the hub for the region um, as far as a you know a city, small city goes. And we're working um, with Ellsworth and partners to improve uh, walkability and bikeability and green space connections there. And then on uh, north from there, and protecting um, the river habitat around uh, around the Union River, which is a pretty uh, also wild and, and spectacular place as you get north up through Mariahville and Amherst and Aurora. You know, I I know that I, and I bet a large percentage of our listeners, um, use and recreate on so many of the lands that your organizations and others have protected, potentially without even realizing Mm -hmm. who who these lands belong to. Um, Can you talk a little bit about um, the role of private property owners in land trust work? Yeah, uh, so we... uh Private property owners are a big part of our work and key. Uh, We work uh, with uh, private landowners on a voluntary basis. So uh, it's at their discretion to decide if they want to conserve uh, their land and work with us. And so we have been, you know, over the 50 years of our organization, we've seen um, a, a number of incredibly generous donations of land through donating properties so that they could be continued to be loved and enjoyed by the public. And then we also work uh, on uh, sort of a legal tool, uh, co- a conservation restriction called a conservation easement. And that is uh, a situation where the landowner, the private landowner, continues to own the land, but they place restrictions that uh, limit the d- development and in some cases may open it up to the public for public recreation. So we're highly dependent on uh, public landowners throughout the coast and interior Maine. Great. Um, so let's jump into some of the exciting projects that you guys are up to these days. Um, Hans, what's what's going on at Blue Hill Heritage Trust? What's especially exciting right now that you've been working on since you've arrived? So there there are a couple of uh, different kinds of things that are that are going on that we're excited about. We were Bob was just talking about working with landowners. We were just given <laughs> um, a hundred acre parcel of land um, about a mile from downtown Blue Hill, on which the the former owner had spent fifteen years or so building three or four miles of trails, um, which he had sort of quietly opened up to people who wanted to go out there and and, and walk on it. And and he got to a point where he was ready to. You know, he, he, had, he had done what he wanted to do with the property, and he wanted it to continue to be um, a public asset, and so he, t- he turned it over to us. Um, a, a large part of what we do, as, as Bob intimated, is, is, is talk to owners and, and understand what they want for their property um, going forward, um, and then we take on that responsibility. Um, so um, you know, we are going to maintain the trails that were that, that property owner p- put in place, um, he likes to have dogs run free, so dogs are going to run free on that property, um, and uh, that was something he was very adamant about. So, um, you know, we, we we work with people to find out what they um, are interested in for their property, and then um, you know take on some of those responsibilities. So that's a really interesting sort of recreational opportunity for downtown Blue Hill. We have also <clears throat> um, in the last year. Um, 
taken control of one uh, 2,100-acre uh, forest parcel in Surrey, which we are calling Surrey Forest. And we're in the process of, of uh, closing on another 2,000 acres of uh, former um, forest land. So um, in, in this case, it's not in a conservation easement with the landowner. This is land this that is ownership. Blue Hill Heritage Trust is, exactly. is owning and managing. And, and so those properties are going to be a, a very different thing um, for us. Uh, open for recreation, if people want to go ride their bikes or walk on the on the woods roads and things like that. But the, these are properties that w- which we're going to get much more into doing conservation forest management. So managing the forest for habitat and water quality and and, and, and recreation and, and um, maybe in the long term, you know, uh, uh, forest products as well. Um, Neat. Yeah. Neat. Um, and that's the Surrey Forest. That's so the Surrey Forest, yes. Pay attention to that as it becomes part of your portfolio. It and and it, it it is and it's open to the public. Okay. Um, and the, the entrance is off the Toddy Pond Road and people are welcome to go in there and walk, run, Great. ride their bikes, ski. <laughs> Great. If you're just tuning in, um, you were just hearing Hans Carlson speak. He's from the Blue Hill Heritage Trust. And uh, you're listening to Coastal Conversations here on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor and WERU.org online. Uh, Coastal Conversations is the show you're listening to. And we're talking about land conservation in the Hancock County region with Hans from the Blue Hill Heritage Trust, with Aaron Doherty from the Frenchman Bay Conservancy, and with Bob DeForest from Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Um, so, Aaron, tell us a little bit about um, the Scudic to Scudic project. I feel mm. like I've heard bits and pieces about it over the last year or so. Give us the big picture. Yeah. Uh, well, this is uh, this is an exciting story that's taken a lot of turns over the years, and it's one of those that I think it's really helpful to take a step back and kind of look at the look at the long term on the project. Um, I, I, Bob's got a smile on his face because I'm sure he recalls the stories from uh, several years back where you know, the outcome of uh, this region could have been very different. Um, so some people may recall that uh, years ago the Modena family had purchased uh, some land in the middle of uh, Goldsboro in the Scudic Peninsula. And there was talk of developing a sort of eco-tourist destination, which didn't sound very ecologically friendly to many people. That included, I think, golf courses and, um, you know, lots of development that um, was didn't seem like it was the sort of fit that we wanted around here, that that communities wanted around here. Well, um, as it turns out, this region from uh, Katy National Park at Skudik Point uh, north up through the Tunk and Donnell State Reserves and on into Maine's North Woods is uh, nationally significant. It's one of the few places along the entire eastern seaboard where uh, the northern forests extend down to the coast in a, a minimally fragmented swath of wilderness, um, again, interspersed with communities. You've got Winter Harbor and Gouldsboro along the way and Route 1 running <coughs> right through it. But you still have... <coughs> The opportunity for people to get out and enjoy unspoiled lakes and ponds along the way and for wildlife, you know, of all sizes up through, you know, uh, moose and bear uh, to wander down uh, toward the coast. And and that's a that's a pretty special thing. So we had the opportunity uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Maine Coast Heritage Trust and Frenchman Bay Conservancy to partner um, along with other organizations. Goodick Institute was a partner on this um, uh, Maine Audubon uh, um, uh, the D- Down East Audubon, I should say, and others um, 
to secure grant funding, so federal money from a program uh, that's set aside through the Fish and Wildlife Service specifically to protect uh, waterfowl and wading birds. And so we focused on really the stepping stones along the way um, around places like Forbes Pond and Goldsboro and the West Bay Ponds, um, just north of Route 1, to protect critical wildlife habitat in places that will be open to the public or are, or are open to the public now. So the last thing I'll say about this is I think for a long time, people have really benefited the opportunities in this region to be able to get out into the woods and enjoy wild spaces. However, that's begun to change over time. And as the parcel size gets smaller and land gets sold, you begin to wonder, can I actually go out on this trail? Can I still go here? Can I still go to this little spot in this pond that I've enjoyed? And unfortunately, the answer to that has sometimes been no. It's it's changed as land ownership has changed. So it's really important for us to conserve those places so that we protect the opportunities for people to get out into the woods. And thanks, Aaron. That's that's really um, the the notion that it's such a unique place because it's the northern forest coming down to the coast is really interesting because we do think of the coast as being sort of fragmented, but there are pockets where there's opportunity for mm-hmm, larger scale conservation. Yeah. So, Bob, what's what's your um, why is the Scudic project interesting for, for you guys? Well, I think uh, one of the – looking at it from a national scale, as Aaron mentioned, it is one of the few places where uh, the northern Maine woods is connected to the sea. And um, we view it as an opportunity, especially with the uh, – the threats of the impacts of climate change. Um, This is one of the areas that uh, shows up nationally as far as its connectivity. So its ability ability to be resilient and to continue based on uh, uh, the geomorphology of the area to to continue to have a connection between the lands on the coast and extending up into the the main woods. And there's also... um, uh, opportunity there. This is an area that we, I think, one of the the catalysts for this was, as Aaron mentioned, this uh, sense of threat um, back when the Modena land was being proposed for development. And you kind of take it for granted that this land is always going to be there and accessible until it isn't. And um, I think that um, was gave us the um, the incentive to kind of look at this from a larger scale perspective and see how significant that piece of property was and how that connects in um, with that being fully developed. Uh, the Scudic District of Acadia National Park could be almost an ecological island. It would completely be isolated from uh, the rest of uh, the main woods. And so I think that's what's really exciting. And then also within this area, these stepping stones, these little pockets of undeveloped riparian areas, lakes, ponds, streams, uh, there's a really great opportunity for recreation. Places like Forbes Pond is a spectacular undeveloped um, pond that has uh, great opportunities for fishing and paddling. And so that's one of the things that's really exciting is being able to get out into these uh, remote areas. And you're not far from Route 1, but you feel like that you ha- do have that sense of wilderness right along the coast. And s- the the initiative is named Scudic to Scudic, I'm presuming, because Scudic Mountain mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, you know, I think, um, actually, I don't remember the name of the person who coined the term years ago, but, uh, and Bob could probably tell the story better than me, but if you stand on Scudic Head, for example, uh, looking north, you see this whole area that we're talking about, and you can see the peaks, um, including Scudic Mountain to the north. And, and Scudic Head and is the... the, the point in Acadia National Park at the Scudic Peninsula, Exactly. Right? Yeah, yep. there's a little hiking trail that goes up Scudic Head. So if, if your listeners haven't, haven't been there, it's a great spot to check out and uh, pretty easily accessible right off that little loop that goes through um, the park uh, down there at Scudic Point. So yeah, it's just a, a way to kind of help people visualize um, this, this uh, point A to point B. But if you think about it, it really, it's... Um, those points blend into the surroundings so that you're looking at the coast generally to the north woods generally and thinking about, um, you know, again, the woods, the woods to the sea. That's great. That's great. So that's a, that's a pretty large scale kind Mm -hmm. of a project. Um, But you guys are also involved really in much smaller projects up and down the coast in this in this region, and I'm thinking in particular in the Blue Hill region. Um, I was reading recently about Pierce's Pond. Mm. Um, if you want to tell us that that seems to have really been a community driven project at a at a much smaller scale. So tell us a little bit about that project. It it definitely was a, a community driven um, uh, uh, conservation effort. Um, uh, so the, the the underlying issue is that um, in many, if not all, of the streams on the Blue Hill Peninsula, um, uh, alewife runs that were historic um, and quite large um, had had really been stopped by various kinds of obstructions, um, mostly um, dams or or poorly um, engineered um, structures in in the rivers, and so for quite a long time, community members um, who were interested in in alewives um, spent a great deal of time helping the fish, you know, get, get by these, these obstacles. Um, and it was definitely not a long-term solution. Um, and, uh, so the collaboration on on Pierce's Pond and White's Pond, um, which both of which projects happened um, last year, um, was between uh, the town alewife committees, um, and, and this is all in the Bagaduce watershed. The town alewife committees and MCHT, um, who Maine, be- Coast, Heritage Maine Coast Heritage Trust, who who began um, looking at at the long term solutions for for putting in fish fishways that were you know sustainable, where people didn't have to be involved in helping the fish um, get up the river, um, and then Blue Hill Heritage Trust. Um, came in uh, at Pierce's Pond um, sort of at at the end of the process because um, we wanted to – we, we had a conversation and we wanted to do an educational project around this fishway restoration. And so um, we worked t- together with those partners and also with Sea Grant um, to um, produce some educational media that is now at Pierce, Pierce's Pond um, and an, uh, an educational and picnic area. Um, and it, 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 it's, it's been an amazing project to be part of because um, it really does reconnect community with the landscape um, you know, in which they live. Um, it's been really fun to listen to people um, who grew up with alewife runs. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the thing about this resource is, is these obstructions are fairly recent. And so people remember when they were kids or teenagers, like in the springtime, the alewives running, and, and that was a big part of the, the, the season around here. And to, to bring these or help these fish runs return within living memory um, so, that, so that people can bring their grandkids and um, begin to watch this process, process happen again. It's, 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 it's really pretty powerful, and it, and, it, and it makes a connection 
a reconnection between community and land, which I think is tremendously important. Um, you know, we, we it, it, you know, I'm, I'm not saying anything that, that, that everybody doesn't know. We're, we're living in times when technology um, gets in the way of our relationship with land quite often. Um, and um, having opportunities like this where we can not only go out and hike a trail or look at a pretty view, but actually get get in and do something restorative on the landscape, get our hands on the land, essentially. It's, 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 it's good for people as well as good for uh, ecological conservation. It's a pretty powerful experience. It is. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm thinking that I was talking initially when I asked you the question about Pierce's Pond, about it being a very localized effort, which in, at a smaller scale, but I'm also re- clearly realizing that if you're helping connectivity of fish passages – you might be conserving a very small little plot of land on a couple of local ponds that have a lot of really personal connection to locals, but you're also helping fish run through a landscape that's much larger. And and, and because alewives are everybody's lunch up the food chain, right. um, you're, you're you know you bring you bring back an, an alewife run and you you begin to restore a whole larger web of ecology out there, which which yeah which is um, if not global at least regional because of where the alewives go after they've after they're done at Pierce's Pond or White's Pond. Um, um, so I want to get into asking you guys questions about just stories of working with people on the ground and, and these moments of sort of important connections that people can make with the places. Um, but before that, I just wanted to invite listeners, if you have any um, questions for our guests or if you have your own stories um, of your involvement and in helping conserve some lands locally, either as a landowner or a volunteer, we'd love to hear your story. I invite you to call into the show today. Um, the number is one 625 9378 That's 1-866-625-WERU. Um, and we're talking with Aaron Doherty from Frenchman Bay Conservancy, Hans Carlson from Blue Hill Heritage Trust, and Bob DeForest from Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Um, so, yeah, Hans was talking about sort of that that opportunity for people to be involved not just in recreating, but in contributing to the restoration of places and the protection of places, which I think is pretty special and maybe something that's different than sort of traditional public lands like a national park or a state forest um, is different at the community level. So, um, uh, Aaron, I know you guys are in the midst of a big project down on Tidal Falls. Um, Tell us a little bit about sort of the human connection there. Yeah, uh, well, that is a fun story. Uh, So, the Tidal Falls property in Hancock, Hancock is, right. okay. yeah, it's a it's a beautiful place on the western shore of um, the Taunton River. Uh, some people call it Sullivan Falls, and so if you drive over the bridge from Hancock to Sullivan and you look south, you can see this falls, and it's um, uh, just a, under a mile down on the east side road, and Tidal Falls Road's on the left. Uh, people have been there. Um, well, for, for millennia, really, uh, there's evidence uh, from the late archaic period, Native Americans using this site. Uh, there were documented uh, burial grounds there and a shell midden, along with many other places surrounding Frenchman Bay and along the main coast. But much more recently, for the past several decades, people have loved this spot as a place to go get uh, a lobster roll or um, some other seafood and enjoy good friends and, and uh, a, a beautiful view of uh, the reversing falls. So 
every twice a day, every day as the tide goes in and out, uh, the water rushes across this narrow spot between Hancock and Sullivan, which is what makes this place um, special. And there are a few reversing falls along the way. There's one in Blue Hill, um, South Blue Hill. There's another one up in Lubeck, I think it is. Um, so, yeah, at... Uh, well, around 2000, uh, the family that owned this property uh, was planning to sell it. It went on the market, and there was a very real threat of loss of access to this point. So it's a theme that we'll probably all mention is one of the reasons why our organizations exist, is to protect places for public benefit. And that's just what Frenchman Bay Conservancy did in 2000 when we bought the property and kept it open for the public. We ran a restaurant for a little while there, but it quickly became clear that a nonprofit really doesn't have any any uh, <laughs> business running a business. And uh, so instead, we had a number of uh, great events there. We still do Monday music, lobster dinner, uh, those sorts of things. And so thousands of people enjoy this place every year. We had a capital campaign. Um, we still have a capital campaign. We're, we're very close to our goal at this point. We've raised over $2 million to completely transform this preserve and support the organization with a land opportunity fund and endowment and a few other things. Um, but about this place, I'll just say that uh, we had a celebration there last week uh, to bring together all the people who have helped make this work possible in restoring the shoreline. Um, and after the band started playing, uh, we said, okay, drum roll, please. And an excavator rolled in and started taking down the buildings on the shore. So it was a really dramatic sight and a lot of fun. But um, that's just what we're doing is restoring the shoreline to what it used to look like historically, um, adding more green space and opening up the view for all to enjoy. That's great. And that, that particular site is also, isn't there a lobster pound right there or, a, yeah, or the remnants of a lobster that's pound? That's the really interesting history of the place is it was a working waterfront for a long time. And uh, that stopped before we purchased the property. Uh, but the Hodgkins family ran that for several decades. Uh, Herb Hodgkins still lives, he's, he's our neighbor, still lives there. Uh, his um, uh, parents started the lobster pound and he and his brother uh, helped run it for a number of years and people uh, have great memories of, of that happening in Hancock as well. So you can still see remnants of the old pound, which is, you know, that sort of thing was was more common, I think, historically along Maine's coast, so a little less common these days. But um, that's something that each of us could probably talk about too, is just the, the working element and how important it is for working landscapes uh, to be paired with conservation. Because, you know, it, the fact is that when people have ownership over a place, whether they're cutting trees or, or catching fish, you know, there's that connection to the land and you really need to have that place intact in order to support your livelihood and your community. Yeah, I would I would love to go there to the question of working forests, working waterfronts and how they, they feature into the conservation work that you guys are doing. I think perhaps oftentimes when people hear about conservation initiatives, the assumption is made that that parcel of land will be maybe accessible for recreation, but not necessarily for sort of traditional working activities. And Maine's pretty unique in that way in that we do have a, a, a still an active sort of working landscape in many places. So what are some of the initiatives that you guys have been involved in that um, has enabled the, the working of the land and the sea to continue? So I think the first thing that I, that I would talk about, because historically it's in, in conservation, it, it's probably the first um, – 
aspect of working landscape protection that went on here was farmland protection. So, oh, yeah, right, um, of course. So we have a number of properties um, on which we hold easements on the Blue Hill Peninsula, which are farms. Um, and they the easements are written specifically so that the land will continue to be farmland in, into the into the future. Um, so we hold development rights on it, but the farmer still owns the land and, and, and is producing food of one variety or another. And this this is a model, um, uh, I mean, a man named Paul Birdsall just passed away um, uh, a few months ago, and Paul was was a member of our board um, years back, but also a, just a leading figure in, in um, farmland conservation um, in the state, was was foundational in Maine Farmland Trust um, coming on board, you know, being created to, to do this very thing specifically. So, so th- that's an important aspect of conservation work in this state is that you know we 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 all have access to and enjoy local food and and conservation organizations can be really key in in helping to maintain that system farmers are the key of course but um we we can help in in that um i i think the opportunity is there um and is and is being used to a great extent uh, in the northern part of the state um but can be used on the coast here as well that that we can do the same sort of things with working forests um that we can conserve forest land um, so that it can be used for wood production, but it can be done in a way that also enhances habitat for animals and water quality for everybody, and which is becoming an increasingly important issue, um, in, in a way that it essentially enhances the forest while human beings make a living out, out of it, um, in the same way that good farming enhances land as you know, people get fed by it, and, and, so, and some farmer makes a living off of it. So, it, 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 I, I think that working relationships with the landscape are are fundamental, and I think they're fundamental. Um, sort of economically, because we all need, you know, we all survive by the land. No matter what you're doing, you're being supported by by land one way or another. Uh, I also think it's really important for the continuity of human communities that we maintain our understanding of what our landscape is for us um, as, as, as more than a view. I mean, the view, the aesthetics are important, but the, the underlying human c- connection between hands and land <coughs> is just fundamental to who we are as as creatures on this on this planet i think very much connected to the experience of being involved in restoration projects very much so yeah 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 um bob yeah yeah and i think another way of getting that um connecting people to the land and getting that hands-on experience so we've been involved with uh farmland conservation sort of throughout the state um a lot of work on mount desert island that we've done over the years and we actually own a farm uh down in rockport maine uh aldemir farm which is a beloved local farm in the camden rockport area 100 acres on the coast and so we have a, a herd of belted galloway cattle um that we uh, own and manage there, and we use that as a resource for 4-H members for kids to come in, learn about handling animals, working on. Uh, we also have a community garden and a working garden where we teach. Uh, we have a kids can grow program where we can teach um, teenagers and kids to come in, work the soils, uh, grow vegetables learn how to manage uh, plantings and uh, actual marketing 
of the plants and then utilize those for uh, local food banks. So a lot of the, um, the produce from there goes into local food banks. And so it's a great way. Um, we have a similar program, Kids Can Go program, based at our uh, – Babson Creek office on Mount Desert Island. Uh, we have a community garden and kids can grow program um, that we do in, with a cooperative extension and uh, brings kids in to have an opportunity to learn how to, to work the soil and learn about where their food comes from. And, and some properties on the coast um, help maintain access for clamors and, and wormers and other folks as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's the case at uh, at Tidal Falls. Um, people do access that property for for worm digging and uh, harvesting seaweed. Um, also at Tidal, uh, sorry, at Taft Point over in in uh, Goldsboro. Um, another um, person who comes to mind is Alan Hutchinson, uh, who was with Forest Society of Maine for a number of years. And you know, I recall one of his talks uh, a little while back about how important it was for. Um, Maine's North Woods to remain intact as a working landscape. And so, you know, that is a much different, larger scale. That organization, the Forest Society of Maine, has protected over a million acres of land through working forest easements. And um, so it's another model of <coughs> of land conservation. And, uh, you know, Alan's message at that time was just that uh, none of this work would have been possible if it hadn't been for the uh, the men and women who who work that land to harvest the trees the, the wood products industry and the fact that our economy is integra- integrally uh, connected with a healthy uh, landscape. What are um, what are some of the challenges in the work that you guys do? Um, either challenges at the local level or at the state level or even sort of national trends. Um, but let's start at the local level. What are what are some things that um, you have to sort of work through? Um, everyone's thinking. I'll I'll jump in first. I'd uh, give everyone else a chance to think and add into it. Um, well, so I would just say, you know, um, I think we have enjoyed in Maine. Um, Um, minimal threat in this region for a long time uh, for land conversion. Uh, But, you know, economic conditions change and communities change. And uh, over time, you begin to see that level of threat change where places that we've all enjoyed, um, you know, pretty soon there's there's a house there or there's a, a series of housing lots and that opportunity to get out to your cherished pond may not be there anymore. Um, a quick story that I would tell is on Abrams Pond in Eastbrook, where there are camps surrounding most of the pond, but there's a beautiful section of shoreline on the southeastern side um, that uh, I believe it's over a mile long. Um, a landowner who who lived there had the opportunity to purchase it, and he spent his whole life coming to this place, and he's he loved it. Um, now, this last section of shore was divided up into 13 lots uh, slated to be uh, uh, developed. Uh, a road was cut into the forest, and people were going to you know, buy those lots and build houses. And that would be you know, a fine outcome for some, um, but he felt like it would be even better for everyone, you know, the public at large, uh, to enjoy the opportunity to have what he enjoyed as a, as a kid growing up and a young person uh, coming back to that pond year after year. So he bought the land and uh, donated it to Frenchman Bay Conservancy, and it's one of our newest uh, preserves now. So, um, you know, that's a threat that we're responding to. 
Yeah, thanks. Um, I think we have a call. David from Brooklyn, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Well, I've really enjoyed listening to the program. Thanks a lot. And I'm, I'm learning a lot about what you guys do. And, uh, Thank you. I'm pretty supportive of it. Uh, I I just, you know, um, I definitely want to go and look at the uh, reverse and falls up there. That's relevant in the near future. And, um, Great. Uh, the uh, Wife Project, you know, you know, top of the line. I'm really glad that, that there's been central... You know, organizing forces. Hey, and could you speak a little? Could you speak I, up? I Dan? got a little concerned when you were talking about the seaweed harvest, because uh, it brought the whole uh, question into my mind about regulation of of uh, land use. Uh, you know, there's so many different ways to harvest seaweed, and uh, the ones that are commonly practiced are a little bit uh, lax in standards about, for example, how much you have to leave of the plant remaining attached to the root, and uh, uh, I, I wonder if there's any effort on the part of the, the land trust to be a little bit more uh, stringently regulatory about the use of these resources than uh, is the case in uh, the public domain in general. Great. Thank you, David. For you guys to tackle, you know, to undertake that degree of, of, of watch, watchfulness. Uh, but I'm just a little curious about, you know, where that interfaces. You know, because once you let the, once you let the, the, once you let us all use the thing, you know, uh, we're liable to misuse it. <laughs> you know, that's, what it is. that's a great question, David. Thank you so much for your call. Um, uh, all our guests are sort of pondering the question, and I think I'm I'm going to sort of summarize it. That there's a seaweed-specific question. But there's also a bigger question that David is asking us, which is what's the role, like how do you manage what is appropriate use on the individual tracks that you guys that you guys manage? So let's start with Bob. Yeah, I guess I'll start with the, the seaweed question, and I don't want to go uh, too down the road because that's not definitely not my specialty. And there's a big question that we've been sort of going back and forth here on the coast of Maine is actually – who owns uh, the seaweed in the intertidal. So I think David was referring to rockweed harvesting, which is uh, tends to be uh, intertidal harvesting or just subtidal. Um, there's other types of seaweed harvesting that I think uh, Aaron was referring to um, in part is that there's subtidal, which is um, in the public domain. So that's a big question. And we've been working with both on the policy end of things about um, that ownership and monitoring that in the legislature, but then also uh, talking to um, various uh, harvesters and the industry and talking about um, what the practices are. So I think there's needs to be an ongoing dialogue with, with the harvesters and thinking about the impacts that this can have. But it does bring up a good question as far as um, the more traditional what we think of as far as uh, management of our lands. Great. Um, but we, we have another call coming in, but hang tight for a minute, Sam, because our guests want to just say a couple more words about the first question. Okay. So I would just respond briefly by saying um, also that there's a question of scale here. And, you know, a lot of the seaweed harvesting 
um, that happens in, in Maine is on a pretty small scale. I mean, there certainly is the large scale, larger scale offshore harvesting. But uh, what I was talking about is hand harvesting, individual people going out and sustainably um, harvesting seaweed that's used, um, you know, for a variety of purposes, including for for food. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to, to keep it small scale, keep it community based, and then you can have those conversations about what's the um, appropriate amount to take and how do we do it sustainably so that we're protecting that, you know, nursery grounds for the fish that use those intertidal spaces and also allowing someone to, um, you know, make a living. Great. Thank you, Aaron. Um, Sam from Hancock, thanks for your call. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I was wondering about like that piece in uh, Abrams Pond. It was, that was in Franklin, uh, Eastbrook, or what, but is that going to come Both. off the tax rolls? And, uh, you know, I don't want these uh, conservancies, uh, do they pay any taxes? Uh, do they do anything for the towns to, to help out with the tax burden? Great. Okay, Thanks. How's that? Thanks so much. That's a great question that, that I was going to ask too, um, Sam. So you beat me to it. This is a good good question. So thanks for your call. And um, Aaron, I think you were going to mention something about that good. as well. Thank we you, Sam. We just have a few minutes left. So, so. Oh, a few minutes. I was thinking maybe three hours for this conversation. <laughs> um, it's a great question. And Sam, so I'll be as direct as possible on this particular one. We're currently um, exempt from taxes in Eastbrook and Franklin. And Frenchman Bay Conservancy has applied for tax exemption in a lot of cases. But we're actually moving to a new system now where we're going to be um, enrolling in open space for all of our properties and paying taxes on all of our properties, which um, I know Hans wants to talk about as well, because land trusts are um, looking at the ways that we provide uh, benefit and um, paying taxes is uh, a responsibility and obligation that a lot of land trusts feel uh, that we should do. Great. Hans, how about how would you address the, the tax rule question? Yeah, I feel very strongly about that, too. Uh, Blue Hill Heritage Trust um, uh, puts all of our land into open space, um, and it stays on the tax rolls. Um, so we take advantage of the, of the the tax benefits that any you know landowner can have, but, but the land does stay on the tax rolls. Can you just explain <clears throat> real briefly what that means to be enrolled in open space? It, it essentially means that your land is open for public use, um, and, you, and you get a tax reduction for that, um, and you can do that as a private landowner as well. Um, and so our land is open for, for public use. Um, our land is almost, almost all of our land um, is open for hunting um, in, in the fall, um, and so there's open access for that as well. Um, and and it, 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 it's, a le- it's a legitimate concern for, for that, our, that our organizations really should need to pay attention to um, that towns have budgets to balance. Um, and uh, um, we are... We, we, we are making the argument that conserving some of the land in, in the places where we work is actually of great economic benefit in the end. But when you're trying to balance a, a budget every year, um, these questions about taxes are very legitimate. Um, so. Great. Thank you. Um, thanks for your questions, David and <coughs> Sam. Um, I think we have time for one more quick question. We'll have to make it quick, Catherine, because we're running down on time. So, it's, Catherine it's, from Appleton, welcome to the program. It's probably going to be a yes or no answer. Okay, great. Um, about 20 years ago, I was speaking to a couple who was very interested in giving their land over to the Nature Conservancy. And they found out, and this is 20 years ago, that the Nature Conservancy had a practice back then of selling the land back to the state government. I want to know if this is true, is it still a practice, and I'll, I'll listen. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great question. 
So I, probably our guests can't speak to that specific example, but the larger conversation of what do conserved lands end up sometimes back in the state? Um, there's potential for that, and that's usually by intent up front. So usually that's with the landowner's knowledge that that's going to be the outcome and hopefully communicated well with um, the public that that's going to happen. So there are situations where land trusts will work on uh, conserving a piece of land and with the intent of conserving it and transferring it over to uh, either the state or federal agency. And sometimes that's compensated. Sometimes it's just a straight gift across. So I don't know the specifics about um, with the Nature Conservancy, but there are occasions when uh, land will be uh, transferred over to the state. But 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 the, 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 gr- the greater, I mean, the much greater proportion of the work that we do is taking on land, um, which we, are, we then hold and are responsible for, um, and we make the promise of in perpetuity um, to, to take care to of the land. It. That is yeah. correct, yes. Yeah. And Bob mentioned that this is a discussion that happens with the landowner. So, um, you know, the, it, the landowner would, would uh, you know, have some say in whether the land trust is going to hold it long term or really what the expectation is. So we're all obligated to um, uphold donor intent, which just means, you know, if someone's giving you a piece of property or some money and they say, this is what I want done with it, you know, that's what we have to do with it. Great. Well, I think we're winding down on our time. Um, thanks so much to David, Sam, and Catherine for bringing up some great questions for us. Um, I feel like we need to have you three back in again to talk about this topic in more detail. Um, you've been listening to Coastal Conversations today um, with uh, here on WERU Community Radio. Our guests have been Aaron Doherty from Frenchman Bay Conservancy, Hans Carlson from Blue Hill Heritage Trust, and Bob DeForest from Maine Coast Heritage Trust. Um, if you want to know anything more about all of their organizations, they all have websites, and you can track them down with further questions through their websites. Um, and um, Thanks to those who called in. Um, Next month, our show will be about Maine clams, what is causing their decline, and how do we bring them back? Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Please join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program and taking your calls. And stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Front Street Shipyard.